Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. Oh, you're recording right now. Okay, here we go. Let's yes. start this. Okay, I guess we, we should probably start the show, my buddy. Well, this is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, but since those two are, we've got a better combination. My buddy, Mr. Joel Hoover. That's right, Mr. Dave Brooks. I think it's only suitable that for a podcast that is hosted by a duo, that we, as the duo who we are, talk about a few duos. Not just Batman this. and Robin, my friend. We're talking any kind of good hookup, team-up, partnership, pairing, whatever you want to call it, on screen and off, behind the scenes and in front. The, those that really come together and they really play off each other well. The peanut butter and chocolate that make up the lovely Reese's of Hollywood. Even though this duo, at least one half of it, apparently didn't know that the other half of the duo had started recording at the hey, beginning That's okay. Of this. That's fine. I don't mind egg <laughs> on my face. It goes great with breakfast. See? Duo. It does. That's Playing right. off each other. Because even duos, they can pick up from a mishap and still make something <laughs> wonderful out of it. In the my end. strengths are your weaknesses and vice versa. So we're just like, we're, we're, we're Jenny and Forrest. Yeah, well, when you've hosted a podcast for like 70 episodes now, you get to that point. So welcome to the show. This is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Open and located on Highway 2 just down from the airport. If you're not as comfortable going to movies these days, grab some popcorn there. You can do so from their concession stand and grab some of that yummy popcorn. If you are okay with going to movies these days, they've got them in there. New movies that are hitting the screen. And you can check them out. Highway 2 just down from the airport, the Bemidji Theater. And we're happy to have them as the longtime sponsor of the Rick and Nick Talk Flicks podcast. You know, they've got a really good popcorn deal, speaking of which. And if you're not, like I myself, I'm not comfortable going into a theater right now, but I have gone in a couple times and picked up drinking a popcorn. What might do movie night at the house? They've got a bucket. It's like an ice cream bucket kind of thing. $20, and you can get it refilled as many times as you want for three-something for the rest of this year and all of 2021. Beautiful. So talk about a big deal. And this is a generous, I think it's bigger than any bag they've got. I have one of those okay. barrels. Next uh, time I go, I'm getting one. Yeah, bucket, barrel, yeah, whatever you want to go with to call it. It's big. It's a very, very big container to have popcorn in that you can grab either to go or if you're going to be there. And like you said, a great deal. We're talking about uh, a movie night this weekend and uh, when October comes, which is darn near here, uh, it's just a solid month of spooky movies and movies that can be considered spooky movies and getting our kiddo in on things. Uh, I think this fall he's going to watch E.T. He's, yet he's never seen it. All right. It'll be a little spooky, but I wasn't much older when I saw it for the first time. So that's going to be coming up. And hey, a nice big bucket of popcorn to go with it would just be marvelous. I think E.T., that's yeah, that, that's a good in-between kind of tweener movie. I think I just did a little bit of a redundancy there. In-between tweener. That's a little bit spooky, like you said. It has the sci-fi element to it. 
Well, one of the nights in the movie is Halloween night. That's when they go to try to call the UFO and E.T. goes missing on Halloween. It's good for for the month of October and for the season of fall, yes. So when we get to that, uh, we'll show them a couple that are you know not going to make them too intense. We showed them the Disney Headless Horseman, the cartoon that came out in the fifties. With uh, was it Bing Crosby that did the narration of that, or whoever it was? And he saw that one. He loved it right up until the horseman showed up, and then he was like, and "That was last year." So that was a year ago. Wow. So he he'll be better. Legend of Sleepy Hollow. You ever saw the cartoon version? Uh, I think I did a long time ago, but I. Sure can't remember it very well, and it's I definitely can't remember if Bing Crosby narrated it or it's not. A re- it's like a 30, 40-minute episode of whatever, and it was paired with Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Mr. Toad's Adventures. Okay. And uh, so you watch one, then you watch the other. And it was, you know, fun, and they're they're all good. But the Headless Horseman one, it creeped me out when I was a kid, yeah. too, but in, in the best way. And so at that time, he was three. And it maybe got him. He liked it. He was okay. He wasn't traumatized. I don't want to watch that. But we showed him the Wizard of Oz. He didn't like the wiz- the witch, the Wicked Witch either. So or the Flying Monkeys. So I can't blame him. What you don't? He didn't like somebody saying hello, my little pretty. <laughs> I think she I, I guess say it, it wasn't she quite as nice as that. It. <laughs> yeah, I guess it wasn't quite as nice as I had said it there. <laughs> oh, hello, my pretty. That wouldn't scare me either. But Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch. I remember she was so feared by kids, and apparently behind the scenes, she was a really nice lady. She went on an episode of Mr. Rogers with all the makeup and the witch's hat and everything. Really? Oh, yeah. So Mr. Rogers could show the kids, look, this is all pretend. This is my friend Margaret. And now, Margaret, we're going to put the makeup on. See, it's just makeup, boys and girls. And here's the hat. Can I wear the hat? Oh, that's cool. So it kind of showed kids... The magic behind the curtain, so to speak. They literally lifted the curtain on the wizard, on the Wicked Witch this time, to show that it was just pretend. So Clever. We're kind of doing that with our kiddos, so that might be kind of fun. But that was going down the rabbit hole a little deeper than I intended to plunge. Well, buddy, any current events or news of note? to get into today with our episode. Do you want to talk about the box office stuff? Well, a little bit. We can kind of update it because things remain tepid at the box office. It was a pretty good start for for Tenet as it continues to be the first big tentpole movie to return to kind of the, the big only screen. one, really. Yeah, really the only one. But things have gone pretty quiet because it has been a couple of weeks. Numbers are relatively stagnant. Yeah, so it's a, it's a tale of two different ways to do this. You have Tenet that's only coming out in theaters and has has gotten very good reviews. You've seen it. You talked about it. I didn't hear that part. I put my fingers in my ear. But uh, great reviews, soft box office, because a lot of people, kind of like me, don't want to go just yet. And then you've got Mulan that came out from Disney. Mulan was supposed to come out this last summer in theaters, got pushed, got pushed, came out but not in theaters it was part of disney plus but the controversy on that was you're paying the whatever for your disney plus subscription but for mulan on top of that was 30 dollars for what a 24-hour rental or whatever it is and so you're paying the subscription plus the 30 bucks yep a lot of people don't like that but evidently enough people were eh, that the numbers box office wise if you want to call it that have been very very good for mulan so disney's made the movie so now the Leaning question is into convenience. Into convenience, you could see it. You're not going to the theater to see it. But now this brings up the question: All right, you've got a lot of other movies waiting in the wings. James Bond's No Time to Die is scheduled still to come out in November. They've pushed Wonder Woman again now to just after Christmas time. 
now these movies that are going to be coming out theaters or bust, well, people aren't going to see Tenant in the numbers that you'd like. So if you want to make your bank, because this is a business too, all right, so are we going to find a streaming alternative and not go out in theaters, or are we going to maybe do both? Like Bill and Ted did, where they were in theaters, but they were also on video on demand. They weren't to any particular streaming service, I don't think. They were on numerous. You could get it on YouTube if you wanted to and pay it that way. Um, do you want to go that way, get it out for one, and make bank for two, or are you determined to be on screen and the big screen only for a while? But then you look at Tenet, the numbers aren't so great. Well, James Bond wants to make bank too. What do you do? I've got to think that soon-to-be releases, I've got to be looking at that possibility. What are we going to do? Are we going to push again? Are we going to stream it instead? Are we going to do the hybrid? What are we going to do? That is troubling for traditionalists like you and me who appreciate the movie-going experience, but such are the times that we are in with people who aren't quite as willing to go into the theaters these days and and go see a movie. It does make for a difficult choice for these production companies and the distribution companies to decide what are we going to do about this? What's the best way to go about it? The best way remains pretty open. That means that remains pretty general in terms of what that actually looks like. So, it's going to be a tough choice to to try to determine what to do about that because of what they're seeing already with just these two movies to compare side by side and look at. And again, like I said earlier, it's the ease of convenience when you've got a new movie that is right there that you can watch on a streaming service or if you have a friend who has Disney Plus to be able to watch it that way and then you just kind of split the money between each other like you would for a pay-per-view fight, basically. Yeah, You could just do it as simple as that and... They still make their money, and meanwhile, you still get a chance to watch it. It's, But again, it is tough when the theater-going experience, the movie-going experience, is such an enjoyable one as we've always known it. But now the clamor is growing to say, maybe this should change. Maybe they should, maybe they should quote-unquote, get with the times a little bit, even though it's like, you know, it... it why does it have to be this way? And it's tough that it has to be this way. But, yeah, it, it's going to be one to watch with these upcoming movies. Do they really feel okay with kicking things back into the next year, pushing the, the movie calendar that much more? Because this is all we've known in terms of how movies get released previously. But what we know is changing. I suspect that it's not so much a question of what are you going to do during the pandemic. I mean, that's its own thing. Everyone's kind of figuring it out on the fly. But what are we going to do after the pandemic? The window between when it was theatrically exclusive versus when it was available in other forms, whether it was on video or VOD or streaming or on you know pay, t- pay cable like HBO or whatever, that window is now shrinking. And now you've got all these studios that not only are producing the movies – They've also got their, if they don't yet, they're getting to the point where they have all their streaming services. You get Disney, they're about to redo CBS All Access now to Paramount Plus. Um, you've got Warner Brothers with HBO Max, so on and so forth, and others that are coming. And now they've lifted the, the law that says theaters can't be owned by movie studios. Well, now they can. What do you think is happening? They're sectioning things off so that all of our Warner Brothers, for example, we're going to pick on them for a minute. All of our Warner Brother movies will be shown in our Warner Brother theaters exclusively. They'll be shown in our HBO Max, which is owned by Warner Brothers, 
And eventually they'll be coming out on the Warner Brothers TVs. You know, um, TBS, for example, is owned by Warner. So, you know, any war- all so you could see where it's going. And so yep. they're going to divvy everything up and everything's exclusive. But here's the other problem. I want to go to a theater. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the Bemidji Theater gets bought by Warner Brothers. Well, there goes anything from Paramount. I'm not going to see the new Mission Impossible on right. screen unless I'm going to go get in the car and drive to Fargo or whatever where the nearest you know Paramount Theater is. And if I want to see something from Disney, well, I got to go to Duluth for that. So you can see where the problem is going to go. It's a trickle down of a lot of different things that we have talked about in the past that might be coming to a head in the future. And it's purely speculation of it's speculation. The, direc- the direction where all of this is going. But you could see but, it coming. You could see right now, Disney's on the forefront of this. And it's We've seismic. got these movies, we're going to release them, yeah. but we're going to put it on our streaming service. And we're going to charge $30 on top of your subscription. Right. And evidently, there's been enough people that were like, okay, so now what do you think they're going to do now? You know, if, well, if they'll go that far, right. let's see if they'll go a little further. And then right. at some point, you could, and this is my conspiracy theory, but you could see those chips falling into place like that. So this is what I see coming theaters will still exist there might be less of them but you're going to start running into problems of exclusivity which on streaming services already you're running into people even right now and there's more coming so this is going to be an exasperating problem where i don't there's so many choices i don't want to subscribe to 15 different streaming services just because i want to see all these things i wanted to see the greyhound movie we've talked about this before but i don't want to subscribe to apple because i'm already subscribing to three i don't want four yeah Let's talk some happier tidings, right. shall we? We have on this podcast in the past talked about quality or really enjoyable individuals to watch on the screen in terms of actors. We've talked about directors, individuals. We've talked about great ensembles in the past as well. But a good duo, a good duo, a good tag team, like with podcast hosts. Or fill-in podcast hosts. If we ever find a good podco- podcast host like you've just mentioned, we'll be sure to let you know. Yes, we will. <laughs> well, the ones who would typically be doing this are continuing to get themselves involved in whatever that's outside of actually hosting the podcast that bears their name. But a great duo, there's just something about two feeding off of each other and complimenting each other whether it's on screen or off screen that just is really appealing and I don't know why that's the case with two sometimes it's a trio sometimes there's a a really good trio that that works really well like I think the dynamic of George Clooney Brad Pitt Matt Damon in the Oceans movies although that's an they're within an ensemble but those three especially at the core there's something about that that just works great but when you have two who can tag team off each other, whether it's in a great rom-com or action buddies from even back in like the 80s, you know, you get some of those action duos that that come to mind, or a good director-actor combo or director-behind-the-scenes person combo. Boy, there's something about a great duo, Dave, that really resonates within a movie, and you can go back to the 30s and the 40s and the golden age of Hollywood to look back to where you can find a lot of dynamic duos. And not just on screen, behind the scenes as well, and maybe a combination thereof. Uh, I can give you an example right off the bat where you've got on screen Robert De Niro. And behind the scenes is, you know, how many movies have he and Martin Scorsese done together? I mean, it's 20? Plus the the whole first season of The Irishman? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
It, you know, th- that's a team up that happens all the time. It was famous when uh, George Lucas was casting Indiana Jones. I don't want Harrison Ford to do this role because I don't want him to be my, my my De Niro. You know, in every movie that I do, I'll have this guy. You know, some people have their good luck charms, and they always have that one guy show up. But uh, De Niro like- and Scorsese, I mean, they've got their own subgenre out of. I'd have to look it up. It's not a, a a good luck charm though. If it works really well, it's just a really great team. I mean, if they if they work well together within their movies, it's it's a great team. I mean, did Scorsese need De Niro in every one of his movies? No, he didn't. There's there's examples to the contrary. The Departed. There's there's one right there where. Although he did go to another guy who he's worked with quite a bit, Leonardo DiCaprio, and was able to team up with him. Sort of becoming the new De Niro, I guess. Is De Niro? I'm not saying he's aging out, not by a long shot, but uh, there's just something about those guys. They and from movie to movie to movie, they're very similar. There's very similar things, obviously, because you've got the same forces behind the scenes doing it, Um, and you get similar movies. But you know, Goodfellas and Casino. They're kind of the same thing, but Raging Bull, different, but it's got connective tissue. Taxi Driver, different, but connective tissue. It's funny because, like I said earlier, it does harken back to a lot of what you saw in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. What did you have then? Speaking of production companies being tied into, you were talking about theaters in the present day. Production companies had certain actors under their billing who were contracted to them, certain directors who were contracted to them as well. So what you would get would be a lot of the same actors teaming up with each other in movies, and they, they would just be under that one production company. So you would see a lot of people teaming up over and over again. One of my favorite duos, classic duos, Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. There's oh, yeah. one right there. Adventures of Robin Hood. Really one of the biggest ones that featured the two of them together, but there were also other ones like Captain Blood. A lot of different movies that had the two of them as the leading man and the leading lady together in a movie. Another early one, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, which then became Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, who off-screen were a couple as well, but on-screen were often featured together, that comedic piece that that those two duos had. And Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn were really funny together in their movies. Grant kind of started to go a different direction in his career then, but Hepburn remained a really good leading lady who also was capable of leading a screwball comedy. Um, Grant went a little bit more dramatic, but he also could be in comedies early on and frequently was too. But then Spencer Tracy started to fill that role and go on with that. So when you had a lot of these people who were tied into one theater or tied into or one company or tied into one director, you started to see some of those partnerships get forged where people came, maybe not necessarily for the story, they came for, I get to see Jimmy Stewart. In this movie. In an I, Alfred Hitchcock movie. How many did they did? Like two or three or four? They did. Cary Grant, same thing that when he jumped in with, with Hitchcock for a few movies. Or Grace Kelly when she was in Hitchcock movies for a couple of them. You came to see the person who was starring more often than not. And some of those early examples. You came to see who was starring because they would play some kind of character with a name within their movie. 
but you're also coming to see primarily their headline. I think that started to change in the 50s and 60s. It started to become more about the story rather than the people who were at the center of the story. Like There became more method acting. That started to come along. But early on, you're coming to see those two headliners and maybe a third person who's also kind of in there as the wild card. Yeah, I actually had an idea about doing an episode kind of down the lines of what you're talking about. But, you know, back in the day, there were studio contracts. You know, this group is only doing movies for Paramount, actors and directors and so forth. This group is with 20th Century Fox. This group's with Warner, so on and so forth. And you had to get permission for them to cross over. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, they were being dealt like they were poker chips. So you didn't get crossovers that often from one studio to another. It it happened. Of course it did. Uh, And when you got the all-star cast, they weren't whistling Dixie. But now it doesn't doesn't work like that anymore. You might have a three picture deal with so and so, but when that's expired, you can go somewhere else. You know, Spielberg has clearly worked a lot with Universal, but he's also done studio films for others, and not to mention his own studio with DreamWorks. But now you've got, in some cases, people that clearly just work well together, and they will either seek one another out, or the filmmakers will say, "Well, this is my guy. I want De Niro for this." You know, Scorsese isn't making De Niro screen test for his stuff. I, this would be a good movie, Bob. This is what we're doing. You want to do it with me? Sure. Okay. And they're off and doing it again. I kind of like those. That Clearly, they get along together, so there's already a chemistry there, whether it's something that's on screen and crackles. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite uh, on-screen duos is Riggs and Murtaugh from the Lethal Weapon movies. I didn't like the TV <laughs> series as much, but when you had Mel Gibson and Danny Glover together on those four movies, and there were some instances, there was a movie called Maverick, which was based on the 50s TV series, which Mel Gibson played the James Garner role. James Garner did come back in a different role. Yeah. There was one scene where there was a bank robbery, and they had Danny Glover come in, and clearly they're interacting with one another as if, don't I know you from somewhere? It was meta. You know, of course you do. <laughs> We've starred in all these Lethal yep. Weapon movies. And, but the funny thing is, in, on screen, Riggs is just a wild guy. Yes. And Murtaugh is very uptight and all this. Apparently, in real life, it's kind of the opposite. Danny Glover's like, eh, whatever. And, you know, Mel Gibson's very strict about things. A little wild, but he's more. So they kind of play off that in real life to their characters and the way that they interact with one another. One's weakness is the other's strength, and they kind of make a good bond. And I think that works so well off screen and on screen for those two guys in particular that you could just tell something was going on and it worked. It just crackled, whether they were at each other's throats or not. It was just a great team-up partnership, so much so that even now it's been, what, 20-some, almost 30 years since the last Lethal Weapon. They're talking about a fifth one. Listen, for guys like you and me, we we can appreciate those buddy partnerships on screen a little bit more, can't we? Let's go even further back to one of the original buddy partnerships on screen, Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Oh, one of the all-time classics. You put the two of them together in, in the movies they were in, and they're just sensational. You've got Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which you go into thinking, okay, we've got two of the most famous criminals in American history teaming up together. This is going to be a little bit serious, isn't it? No, it ends up not being with the movie. You've got Paul Newman riding around on a bicycle with raindrops falling on his head. Not literally. The song was playing as he was doing that. But you've got the two of them cracking jokes with each other as they're on the run from the law. And you're like, what exactly is going on here? This is this is not what I expected. But it worked with the two of them. And then you go into the sting, and you've got them in a different environment, 
But the same two guys, once again, and once again, it just works beautifully because they feed off of each other. They've got their own particular quirks, their own way of doing things with the way that they act, and it's just so natural. And again, for guys like you and me, we appreciate seeing some guy buddyship on screen and working that way. Buddyship, friendship, buddyship. Sure. It kind of works that way. Friendship but, and buddies are a little different. They're not they're similar. They're on the same vein, but there's something different. Yeah. And we just kind of seem to have an appreciation for it in a funny way. Like you said with um the Riggs and Murtaugh idea. That started, I think, earlier on with a guy with a partnership like Paul Newman and Robert Redford with the way that they teamed up. There's there's always different ways to do it. Riggs and Murtaugh, you know, the first few scenes, they don't like each other. They do not want to be around each other at all. And they just kind of, over time, realize how good they are for one another. And it just develops into something else. When you got, when you Sound have like a uh, couple there. Well, sort of. I mean, in a way, it is. It's a bromance. When you've got guys like Paul Newman and Redford, I think they only did the two. They did The Sting in the 70s. They did uh, Butch and Sundance in the 60s. They always talked about doing something together again, even in the last 10 years. Well, now it's not going to happen because Newman is gone and Redford is retired. Um, and that was a, it was a lost opportunity it's to get bad. them together one more time. And anything. You know, there's enough good writers that could have made a duo and said, hey, guys, we got this. But they kind of blazed their own path was what they wanted to do, and it never came together again. But they were friends in real life. They did come together. You know, Could that have been an interesting team-up rather than having Dustin Hoffman and all the President's Men where they really did not like each other, but they made a good partnership? Could they have gotten Paul Newman in there? No, because he was too old and they were young reporters is kind of right. what it was. But nothing ever came around to make it happen, and the talk was they were going to do one more team-up and both retire. Didn't happen, and that'll be a loss. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. We're Rick and Nick. No, we're not. We're Joel and Dave, but we're duos, both of us, and we're talking about duos today. Before we get into off-screen duos, Dave, I do want to talk about specifically romance on screen and romantic duos because I, I mentioned Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland a little bit earlier. Much like with a good buddy duo. going to do Rock Hudson and Doris Day? Well, there's one <laughs> example. Romantic duos, that's as classic as it gets in movies, but there are some that just work better than others on screen. One of the originals, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, a duo on screen, and they became a duo off screen as a result with, with their marriage then, too. They are truly iconic. They are, and they kind of, they were one of the earliest examples of setting in stone a, a really strong romantic partnership on screen. I mentioned Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn as well in that that same time frame. You get those kinds of duos too, and sometimes it can work really well on screen as well. And I thought of this topic, and I thought of Bogey and Bacall because I just watched a movie of theirs the other week um, that I hadn't seen in a long time. So, Well, every time you hear about a team-up of a guy and a gal, we're going to be the best duo since you always hear, Bogey and Bacall. It's on everybody's list. Even if you're 20-something and you don't really know who they are, but you've heard somebody say it, there's a reason. That's peanut butter and jelly. Right. Exactly. And that's where it all began as far as romantic duos on screen. Any favorites that you have or any that you think really are a great example of this is what it looks like? 
I think they only did the one team up, really, but you had that. They really crackled, and nobody saw that coming. It was George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez and out of sight. I mean, people were, wow, that's a team up. But they never re-teamed up. You know, right. they, they just did the one, and wow, was that something. That was one of those examples where do you go for the story or do you go to see the stars or the pairings? You know, would you go see a, a Paul Newman and Robert Redford movie as their trash men? Yes, because you know that they're going to interact. Would you see a Clooney Lopez movie again, knowing how they crackled together without a sight? Would you see that again? Maybe whether or not Soderbergh was writing or directing it. Yes, you're going for the cool factor when you've got those two, and then when you consider the director who's involved as well, you're absolutely going for the cool factor there, it was, aren't you? It was more than that, because he's a convict. She was a, a, a marshal, I think. U.S. Marshal Service, I think, is what her character was. Yeah. And, you know, she's after him, but she's also kind of after him, you know, or at least allowing him to get to her. They're on the run, and the whole SWAT team is in the hotel to get him, and the elevator door is open, and he's just standing there and gives her a wave, and she just kind of, like, waves back, and doors close, and she lets him go. I mean... It was almost like uh, it was almost like something out of the Thomas Crown Affair. Exactly, it borrowed that same kind of method as far as making that kind of duo work—the unlikely duo of one's chasing the other, but they're also kind of chasing each other because there's clearly interest there. And that's one of my favorite movies, and a big reason why is because Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway are just ridiculously good together with their their back and forth their 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 just partnership in general and also the the general flow of their conversations and some of the mannerisms and the looks they give each other all of that just adds up to a partnership that's just brimming with interest and that's brimming with real intrigue on screen too i mean i love that duo i i can't believe they only did one movie together because it just worked so super well. But also, again, having a director who is pretty slick, Norman Jewison, running the show with all of that certainly helped too. But again, another duo that worked extremely well on screen with their their back and forth that they that they had. And it's not always about what gets said. It's also about the way that they respond to each other. And you can tell with the really good ones, there is just this natural flow in conversation, but there's also a natural flow in looks to one another. How about another one from the nineties, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I mean oh, they yeah. were they were the classic They did like three movies together. They I think it ended up being four. They ended up teaming up again uh, just a couple of years ago for a lesser-known movie, I think. Oh, I didn't hear about that one. They did Volcano. They did Sleepless in Seattle. They did uh, You Got Mail. Was there a fourth one? There was. Just a couple of years ago. I think 2015, they reunited for a a lesser-known project that was done. I never heard of it. Must have been lesser-known. I was just reading about it um, leading into this, this episode today, but... Romantic comedy duos, they were a huge one. Oh, yeah. Um, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, another one from in the 90s, a uh, couple of times that they teamed up first with Pretty Woman and then with Runaway Bride. But that romantic comedy um, division, that created an opportunity within a genre like that to have some team-ups like that. And um, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, they're, they're the biggest one that comes to mind. Even though they didn't share scenes all that often, especially in... Sleepless in Seattle, they rarely shared the screen together in there, but but it's the connection from afar that was so compelling. Yeah. I even thought, uh, even though they did the one, stick with Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. 
when they did uh, their one movie and Harry Met Sally was yeah. such absolute chemistry and everyone thought that would be perfect to team up again, but never did. And maybe there's something about that. If every couple years, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are doing another movie, then there's another movie. Then At some point, maybe the movies aren't as good, and does that take something away from the original? Does Jaws the Revenge take away from the brilliance of the first movie? Because how bad the fourth one was, the first one doesn't stand on its own, or does it get pulled down just a little bit, right. like those yellow barrels? Is is the fact that you, know, that, uh, you only get so many team-ups and they're good, and they're just left as they were, perfect and untouched. The Sting and Butch and Suncans, Sundance are both brilliant movies in and of themselves, but they didn't do the other movies to maybe tarnish that team-up. Maybe there's something special about Clooney and Lopez only doing the one movie and really doing it well. I think there's a good point there, Dave, because after Titanic, I think people really wanted to see Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet team up again for a movie. And then I remember when Revolutionary Road came around in the 2000s then, there was more buzz about the fact that DiCaprio and Winslet were going to be back on screen together oh, yeah. than about the movie itself. There it, there was a lot less talk about this movie and what it's about than DiCaprio and Winslet, DiCaprio and Winslet, they're, they're back together again, they're back together again. Like, people were super excited about just that portion of it rather but than that, the movie. But like you were talking about earlier, that harkens back to the day. So you've got, uh, you've got Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn together. Does it matter what the story's about? Sometimes the story was kind of like, eh, what it was about? I don't even remember. I just watched those two guys. And sometimes that's all it was to sell the movie. Okay, here's a movie where they're both fighting aliens, and here's a great-sounding plot, and you got great two actors. Plot schmott. This was about two people that everyone wanted to see together, together, and they made it work. And it always worked so well. Look at Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. They started out in Days of Thunder before they were married or anything. That's how they met, actually, on that movie. But they also did Far and Away. Then they did Eyes Wide Shut. And those movies got less and less good as they went. Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick, of course, and there was interest there. But the movie, eh, it was because it was Kubrick, and that's all that mattered. It was Kubrick. Oh, and it's Cruz and Kidman while they were still together, which may have played a strain in their what became a divorce later. Who knows? But the dynamic on the screen, depending on your taste, it was really good or it was eh. But the movies were kind of eh, and they got less good as they went. Sometimes you try to force it. Sometimes it's by convenience. Well, we're married. Let's do a movie together. I don't want to be gone for a year and a half away from you. Why don't you be my co-star? We'll do it together and however it works. And so it does not always work, but it sometimes it kind of does work in a way. There was a big fascination between those two big stars, Cruz and Kidman, until it didn't happen anymore. There are, I think, lessons to learn from examples like that where if you've got a good partnership, sometimes it's just best when you have a great one-off or a great individual movie where it worked really well together would i have been interested to see steve mcqueen and faye dunaway team up again later on in, a, in another movie and see how that would go yeah but am i glad that they had the thomas crown affair yes and it was great that it was just that one plus mcqueen teamed up with a lot of a, a lot of different people across a lot of different movies like he met his eventual wife Allie mcgraw in the getaway and they did that together and that was a great duo there of course, with Faye Dunaway, you think of Bonnie and Clyde and, and teaming up with um, Warren Beatty. Yeah, with Warren Beatty there in, in that movie, and their great uh, dynamic duo that they had within that movie as well. So, 
it's interesting how even within a couple of decades, you had a shift from you could get some great on-screen duos who were in a constant string of movies together in the in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and then it changed to you might have a great one-off duo who team up together for one movie, and then you may not see any other movies with them together in it again, but it was a pretty fun ride during that one. Here's another example. Elvis Presley and Anne Margaret in Viva Las Vegas. You know, there's there's another somewhat infamous duo as well. Not but infamous. Uh, they got together behind the scenes too. But uh Right. A little a little scandalous there at the time. But then on screen, I mean they they had a pretty entertaining movie yeah. together. Yeah. And there let's talk maybe a couple examples where it was forced and it didn't really work out so well. The Towering Inferno, you had two of the bigger stars at the time. You got Steve McQueen and you got Paul Newman. Wow, that should be great. It really didn't work, not just for the lack of chemistry, but I mean, even behind the scenes to the point where I don't want my name above yours. Well, you're not going to have your name above mine. Yeah, you I want the exact that. number of dialogue lines that you do. So word for word. And we're not just talking about uh, the Towering Inferno. When they did Who Frames Roger Rabbit, which was a Disney, it was done by Touchstone, which is Disney, um, they also got the Warner Brothers cartoon. So you got the two iconic cartoon moguls over both of those mountains, Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse, for the, to my knowledge, one and only time they've ever shared screen time showing up together, Bugs and Mickey. But it was the same thing. They had to, nobody could one up the other. And it was during a falling scene, and they both come falling alongside. They had to have the same amount of dialogue together. That was cool and iconic to see that kind of a team-up. But, you know, it was almost more done legally. It was fun to see them together, and then it was over. It was like seeing De Niro and Pacino on screen for the first time in Heat, and now they're teaming up all the time. It was fraught with jockeying. Yeah. yeah, jockeying for who gets that bit of top billing. But making not even that, making sure that the other guy doesn't get any kind of edge over you yeah. at all. So whose name is above the others? Then they'll do this weird stagger. You're on the left, but you're on the bottom. But you'll be on the right, but on the top. So technically you're not really, no one's got the leg up on it. And you get weird things like that. You know, they'll go through the, the script and pull out everything. Well, you can't edit out this scene because that cuts out some of hit my dialogue. And then he doesn't get a scene cut out. And then he gets more dialogue than me. It gets stupid sometimes. And there have been attempts to push things like that together. And it doesn't work. Let's change gears and talk behind the scenes or even screen to off screen as well because there are a lot of off screen partnerships that are really exceptional and you had a great example of one that combined director as well as some special effects. Yeah, I I had a big love when I was starting to get into movies with the team up that was James Cameron and uh, um, Stan Winston. Stan Winston was, you know, James Cameron, the director, of course, Terminator and Aliens and the best. Uh, Stan Winston did a lot of the practical special effects, not CGI as much as he did the dinosaurs, the real giant, you know, animatronic dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, which was Spielberg, of course. But he made the Terminators, the skeleton, the, the you know, the, the endoskeleton underneath Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a lot of the high end makeup work that was involved. So when Schwarzenegger's face is half blown off, but the metal skull is underneath, yeah. that's that's him. He made the big queen alien. 
in Aliens, which was like four guys and a crane on this thing. It was ridiculous. He made things work in a way that looked very believable. And the way that he worked, and, and unfortunately he's passed on, but his legacy lives on. And wow, he was truly one of the greats, an Oscar winner at what he did. And he teamed up with many great directors, clearly did good things with Jurassic Park, with Spielberg, but there was just something mm, that was just kismet when Cameron would team up with him. And Winston and Cameron together, I don't. it was at that point, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't care. I'm in. I'm going to like it because I've never seen a James Cameron movie that I didn't like after Piranha 2. And and when you know Winston's involved, wow, this is going to be good. Yeah. And Hollywood has lost a huge chip with Winston and that team up. I mean, what could have been? Maybe the last Terminator movies would have been better if Winston was on board too. I don't know. Just 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 a thought. Maybe. There was something special though about the way that they were able to take director vision and put it into action then with the way that it looked. Let me give you an example screen. of how this worked. Those two are sitting on an airplane together and they had a direct influence in another movie that one of them was involved in, not the other one, the Predator specifically. So Stan Winston designed the new look for the Predator in the 1987 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. He's sitting on an airplane with with uh, with James Cameron and he's designing what the Predator should look like. And Cameron's looking over and says, "What about mandibles on his face? I, I've never I wanted to see something with mandibles." And you know, Winston's like, "Huh, that's a good idea. Put it." And the Predator has mandibles. That was James Cameron just sitting next to his buddy on an airplane, and what magic they made on a movie that wasn't even his. So the partnership it just worked on all levels, and it, they they you know while they're both very steadfast and I know what I know, they collaborated so well together. You know, one person might be thinking another thing. The other person says, well, what about that? And that starts to come together rather than, nope, nope, I know what I want. That's going to be my way or the highway, you know, which James Cameron is famous for doing. He's a very good director, but very hard to work with yeah. from what you hear. But with Stan Winston, they just, they just, they were the yin and the yang. Directors often have those people who they can rely on. We talked about that earlier with actors who they'll commonly team up with. But those behind-the-scenes people are essential as far as their operation and who they trust on, I'm going to work with this person on on being able to make this part of my movie work almost every time. Christopher Nolan has quite a few people who work that way. I mean, he's, he's got one a of, team, really. Basically, it is like a team. You know, Going outside of the duo realm, he often goes to the same kind of people for his cinematography. Wally Pfister is the most common one who he's who he's worked with, or Feister is the most yeah. common one he's walked worked with, but he worked with Hoyt Van Hoytema here a couple of times too. Music, it's often Hans Zimmer. Almost he, always Christopher Hans Nolan, Zimmer. Hans Zimmer. I mean, that wasn't the case here with Tenet. Hans Zimmer was already committed to some yeah. other work. But Nolan, Zimmer, you often put the two of them together in terms of music and in terms of directing. They'll often team up with each other, and it's, hey, what do you need? And then they just run from there. Um Often works with his wife, Emma Thomas. She'll work oh, yeah. on, on doing a lot of the producing and a lot of the behind-the-scenes um, crafting of the movie that goes into what they do in terms of going from the filming to the cutting room floor to when they actually finish it off. She's often in there working with him on that. So And his brother, lo- they're writing together, yeah. That's a lot of partnerships that work within what often makes his movies what they are and, and churning out the same kind of 
success that they've had. But over you've got and over. that team, and as different as Interstellar is from Inception is from the Dark Knight trilogy, they all kind of seem like they're cut from the same cloth and just kind of the way that they're made. And you got that same team, so they're not making the same widget over and over. But they just know the right materials to work, and they just keep coming up over and over. I'm not surprised you went Christopher Nolan. But I'm surprised you skipped over maybe one of the more obvious behind the scenes, and it's a double behind the scenes. You you cannot talk about duos and not mention. You know where I'm going to go right now, don't you? Don't you? Don't you, my buddy? Steven Spielberg and John Williams. Spielberg yes. has got to be, if not the best director ever, he's in the top two. And, John and I'm not Williams, surprised that you went that route either. <laughs> Since those are among your favorites. Well, and John Williams has got to be quite possible. I think, I, I, I maybe hands down, just from the full body work, James, James uh, John Williams has got to be the best film composer ever. Now, it's not that they've only worked be with one It'd be hard another. to argue, even though there are a lot of great ones. There are a lot They're of great absolutely ones. iconic. If you do, dun, 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 you know what it is. That's right. If you didn't, that's, again... I mean, it's just absolutely iconic. John Williams alone changed the sound of cinema from Star Wars to Jurassic Park to even JFK got into some heavier stuff. And it's not that you know every Spielberg movie is John Williams. Every so often, John Williams just isn't available. And he's getting to the point where he's got to be approaching retirement, I think. He's already said, I'm done with Star Wars from after Rise of Skywalker. So that part is done. Will he work with Spielberg some more? Yeah, probably. But there have been other movies where he's working on a Star Wars movie and Spielberg's got a movie coming up. Is John Williams going to be available? No. So Spielberg has worked with other people in the past. But generally, he keeps getting teamed up with John Williams. And I'll give you a good example of one of their collaborations with Jaws. You know, we all know, didn't. So Spielberg and John Williams get together and Williams, okay, I got the score here. He's like, okay. And Spielberg had told the story that he's sitting there in John Williams' house or whatever, and there's the piano. There's no orchestra. It's just, we're going to play it on the piano. And he just takes two fingers. And Spielberg said, I thought you were kidding. I, I thought he was kidding. <laughs> there's no way. That's really funny, John. Okay, really, let's hear the score. No, that's it. And the whole idea behind it was it's primal. It's all it is. And it just picks up peace. It's primal, and Spielberg did not see it. He did, at least not initially. He did not see what John Williams was pushing, and he very well could have said, "John, no, I really think you're kidding. I'm not getting this. Give me a orchestral piece, not that." But they worked so well together, it stuck, obviously, and it's become one of the most iconic pieces of film music ever done. And from from Sugarland Express, I think was the first time that they worked together through Jaws, through Indiana Jones, through even some of the more fun movies where they do a more of a jazz score, like The Terminal with Tom Hanks, Saving Private Ryan, which is more sweeping and orchestral. I haven't looked. I don't know if he's doing the score for West Side Story since it's a musical, but he very well might be. I haven't looked that one up, but uh, that's what you can look that up for me. I can take care of that. But it yes. is true. My buddy's got my back it's truly one of the best partnerships from two people that you just don't see together and enough to the point that they have an album out the two of them i mean it's not spielberg singing john williams hits it's basically you know john williams conducting all the scores from all these various spielberg movies together in one epic team up so to speak and it's wow 
talk about transforming history together in the cinema. Is he, are they working on West Side Story together? No, David Newman is that going to sense. be doing the score adaptation for it. Um, they they're saying music is by Leonard Bernstein with the original score, yeah. but it's going to be an adaptation that David Newman is doing. Okay, and you know, and that yeah, might from be, the original. That might be more Newman's. You know, that might be more of his paintbrush, so to speak. Not that John, but John Williams could do anything, honestly. Um, but yeah. When we talked about Spielberg, we talked about the sense of wonderment that often comes with his movies. You get a bit of that within the way that he makes the movie and the way that the movie comes off, but a big part of that is with the score, and that's why it's such a good team between him and John Williams because there's something about the way that John Williams crafts those terrific, memorable songs in your mind that the terrific memorable music in your mind that it resonates with you it sticks with you the like you said those are themes that you can easily recall in your mind and they fit the tone of the movie really well the adventurous tone of a lot of those movies it it suits sticking with spielberg for just a moment he and tom hanks and not just on screen saving private ryan catch me if you can and and others uh, the terminal but even behind the scenes, the two of them executive produced Band of Brothers, which right. is just absolutely, it's one of the better shows. It's a 10-hour miniseries on HBO. It's about World War II uh, and the Easy Company that was in the European theater. It's a fantastic show. It's like a 10-hour movie, really, is what it is. Yeah. And it is absolutely spectacular. And I, I know myself. It's like trying to eat a potato chip. You're not. You're going to eat the whole bag or at least a whole bunch more. If I see one episode... And I've got it at home on disc. That's it. We're watching it, and it's just the way it is. Whatever I was going to do today, it's off. We're sitting and we're watching this. Yeah, but this is episode four. Well, I've got the whole thing. Let's go start with episode one and go all the way through. It's, it is a spectacular show. And the two of them together really made that happen, and that sprung out in a lot of ways from Saving Private Ryan. A lot of the crew that was involved in that came over to do the same thing with Saving Private Ryan, went into Band of Brothers. The look was the same. It just, it really was born out of that. And what a partnership that those two have had. It's really been something. Sometimes you get duos that are just natural, but then they end up feeding into making some great movies. And I'm talking about the Coen brothers. And that's a brothers though. That's, that's you know, even still, yeah. Dave, they could have just decided, Hey, we're going to each go off and do our own thing. That's true. But they decided, Hey, you know what? Let's go and let's make some movies together. And it's turned out pretty well for them. I mean, you get a natural, a natural partnership like that right there. You could take it and, and run with it. If you, if you'd want to, or you could just say, eh, I don't need to, I I've grown up with you. You know, I'm related to you. It doesn't, doesn't matter. But then you get that that creativity that can come from that natural partnership, and look where it's taken them. There are some movies that are directed by multiple people, uh, two people or something along those lines. It does happen. Um, and usually when you see it, it's a bad sign. It usually means somebody had to take over for somebody else. And sometimes it's a credit thing where, like with Solo, Ron Howard had to reshoot over 50% of the movie to take it away from Lord and Miller. Um, a duo on their own. A duo yeah. on their own, yeah. But you also have, in animation, that's different. And then you have team-ups. The Wachowski brothers uh, had done the Matrix movies, and uh, Lana Wachowski is now doing the new fourth Matrix movie. But when you have the Coen brothers, a lot of times in a lot of those movies, 
the only I think it's Joel Cohen that directs them officially. But you talk to anybody that's on those set, they're like they're, it's a collaboration from start to finish, all the way through with those guys. Impressive. So one might get the right the directing credit, but honestly, it's both of them, really. You know, and if they are a partnership, you can get that co credit, so to speak. So they're one of those rare exceptions that you know brothers fight a lot of times, but these two guys, Joel and Ethan Cohen. They very much are on the wavelength. They are two halves of the same coin, and they work so well in concert together that they write, produce, and direct these movies almost as the same person in a lot of ways. Speaking, by the way, of one-off duos that work pretty well, we talked about that on screen. Off screen, there's, there's examples of that too. One that came to mind was the duo that came together to make The Social Network. You had David Fincher directing it, and you have a screenplay that was done by Aaron Sorkin. And you have the two of them teaming up to make a movie that ended up becoming just a, a monumental film in a lot of ways back in, in 2010. And combining together the screenwriting talents of one and the directing qualities and, and things. When you watch that movie, you know, oh, this, is, this is a David Fincher kind of movie right here. But you see those two things melded together within that one movie and it ended up working spectacularly well. Oh, and you know they're both known for their own things, but they so they have such a complementary factor to one another. Fincher's got a very visual style, and Aaron Sorkin is best known for a lot of TV work. Really snappy dialogue, very crafted. The Walk and Talk was basically his own version. If you ever watch an episode of The West Wing, you know what The Walk and Talk is. It's all over everywhere. And getting these two guys together, they're different, but what their differences really complement one another. And to get them together, talking about, they almost ought to do a story every few years about something historical. In this case, the formation of the Facebook and Zuckerberg. And there's got to be a million other things I can think of, whether it's post-presidential elections or this is the thing that happened here. You could imagine seeing how these guys would come together and really work well together and tell a story that is complicated to follow in but do it in such a way that it's very easy to follow and enjoyable to follow even though it's a story about people almost at their worst and say what you want about zuckerberg a lot of people not a fan of zuckerberg and i don't just mean about current stuff i mean like from the beginning right but making him almost a sympathetic character you know what was the i have to i have to abbreviate this the line you're not a bad guy but you try so hard to be you know so to speak. That's what Rashid Jones edited, was yeah. saying. Yeah. I'd love to see those guys come together again. But then again, it's like, did you want to have 15 you know, movies with Redford and Newman before the magic is gone and you just keep trying and trying and getting worse and worse? Maybe the one. Whether it's on screen or off screen or some combination of the two, the best duos have a way of being able to be themselves and be at their best versions of themselves, doing the things that they do the best. And they're able to do so alongside of another person doing the exact same thing. And when you put the two of them together, they're just naturally doing their thing, and they both come together and do it really well together. Maybe even elevating each other. On screen, it's a little bit easier to see that. Off screen, less so, but you get it in what the final product turns out to be. That... Hey, their traits and what they do really well were only heightened by the traits of what that other person does exceptionally well. You know, one duo that was a really good duo for a while in the 70s and 80s and early 90s has kind of gone away, but I think there's still a lot of gas in that tank to bring them back together on screen or behind the screens 
uh, Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas. And they threw Kathleen Turner in for the mix for the Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. But, you know, you go back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, Michael Douglas produced it. He was involved in it, not on screen. And it was one of the first big film roles for Danny DeVito. And between producing and directing or starring, they kind of danced around one another's orbit. And even the three of them, if you keep Kathleen Turner in, they did The War of the Roses, which is not part of, you know, the Romance in the Stone at all. It's just the, the three of them together. But those guys together, you know, and if you want to get the three of them together, fine, but this is a show about duos. And really, it was, you know, Michael Douglas and DeVito. Could you see those guys as rascally old yeah, my prostate. Eh. You know, Michael Douglas is still very, very involved in things. He's definitely slowing down. He's got a new, little new life with the Ant Man series. Danny DeVito's all over. Is always something. Is always sunny in Philadelphia. You know, they, could you imagine seeing those guys together? They've produced one another's works. They've starred with one another. They just make a good duo in whatever side of the camera they're on. If one is on and the other's off or vice versa or together off, together on, they've made a great duo. And if you start looking up the the pictures where they've intersected, I can't think of one that wasn't good. Maybe Jewel of the Nile wasn't that great, but it was the sequel to a good movie. So, You know, we've talked about a lot of past duos throughout the course of this. If people are looking for current examples, you don't have to look too far nope. to find some that are out there, especially on screen. There there are some that are out there that are a little bit more current. One that's a, that's an immediate one that comes to mind, Bradley Cooper and Emma Stone. Yeah. I was going to go another way. I was thinking you were going to go Bradley Cooper and Oh, no, no. Yeah, Bradley Jennifer Cooper and Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, that's one. It's Ryan Gosling, Ryan and, Gosling Emma and Emma Stone, Stone. is yeah. what I was thinking of. Yeah, so They've done two or three, I think. La La Land is most recent, I think. Yeah, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. And then, yeah, that, I've basically combined together the two I was going to talk whammy. about. You got a double You got it. Yeah. You got it. Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, um, a couple of collaborations that they've had together. Um, and that with Silver Linings Playbook, maybe the most notable that yeah. they've had together. But then Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling have had quite a few collaborations. La La Land was the most um, the most revered one, but they've had a few others that they've been in too. Um, a couple of good examples there of, hey, we've got some more duos than maybe you think that are out there today and on the screen where it's not just some film anthology series or an ongoing series that that's put together there's some examples of hey they've teamed up in a couple of different movies one that just comes to mind i'm just trying to think of something current it's an on-screen duo uh specifically and they've been together in other movies too but if you go to the avengers you get tony stark and you get bruce banner you know iron man and the hulk but as actors also they've teamed up pretty well when you get robert downey jr and mark ruffalo uh they were also in the movie zodiac and kind of one was, you know, a burned out druggy reporter, and the other one was the lead investigator in the crimes. They work well off each other. One of them is very manic, and the other is much more laid back. And they kind of yin and yang off each other, both on screen with the Avengers. Their characters, you know, Tony and Bruce are similar to that. But the actors is together, they team up very, very well together. Yeah. Even when they're against one another, they just kind of play off each other very well. And there might be another one, too, that I'm not thinking of. But uh, that, that's another really good team up. A lot of good ones. When you think about it, you can find them out there. But again, I think you have to go off of that premise that I established earlier of they're each doing what they do very well. And then when you put those two things alongside each other and they feed off of each other with it, on screen or off screen or both, 
it ends up making for an even more enjoyable movie. Sometimes all you need is two, but sometimes you can expand it beyond that. That's why we've talked about the ensembles in the past. I think I would like, here's a duo I would love to see together on screen. I think they would play very well off each other. There's a resemblance there. I would love to see a movie about older brothers starring Scott Bakula and Jeff Daniels. They look a lot alike. I think their mannerisms would play very well off of each other, and they're both you know, really good actors. Jeff Daniels in particular. If you've ever seen him do The Newsroom on HBO, and then immediately, I mean, I think he won his Emmy for The Newsroom, and the very next night he went back into uh, doing Lloyd for Dumb and Dumber 2. I mean, talk about absolute polar opposites of the spectrum. You know, this man can act himself beautifully with a paper bag, and Scott Bakula is very, very, you know, kind of down the line, but you know that Jeff Daniels can go either side of that line. He can go very straight or he can go very manic, and I could see a heck of a good team up right there. That's an opportunity, maybe Rob Reiner directing, so you get some good dialogue. Maybe Aaron Sorkin, he and Daniels have already worked together. You could see an amazing team-up between that family dynamic, maybe with the schisms that we have in a lot of families these days. There's a great opportunity right there to explore that in a poignant way, in a snappy way. I'm just saying, if you guys got a little time on your hands, get these guys together, these four guys, Rob Reiner, Aaron Sorkin, Jeff Daniels, Scott Bakula, make it work. You're You're welcome. Dave, you're one of the best workshoppers that I know in terms of coming up with possible ideas that could be done that sound like they are well thought out and well reasoned and should get a shot at this. I mean, I don't know why this hasn't happened to this point yet. Who's not giving you a call? See, I'm an idea man. Problem is most of my ideas suck. (laughs) But you've had some really good ideas on this podcast. It's like, man, if only they were hitting the big time what was that joke george carlin said i'd like to see a light bulb that only shines on things worth looking at (laughs) that's me i'm the light bulb that shines on you know good raw talent there you go at least you're pointing (laughs) the way though or trying to point the way on maybe you should try to do this well do that some of it's just you know i don't want to criticize unless i can offer a better example so if i point out a problem it's because here's a problem let's avoid it here's a way around it you know, so here's something I see that would be really good. What if we did this? What if we did that? Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. I doubt any of my ideas are going to be taken up, but it's an idea. It's a thought. And well, let's just do another one. You know, I'd love to see another episode of such and such, but where is it going to go? You know, you see it. Everybody take their stab at. It. I love you know Halloween movies for the for the example. Uh, so Friday the 13th, big fan of that. I came up with my example of what I think they should do for the next one. But they won't do anything like that. It's always about trying to redo and, well, we'll just try to redo the first one or we'll pick and choose the best things and we'll just kind of malt it together. No, do something different. To make a good sequel, you need to have, I'm probably going down a rabbit hole here, but uh, you need to have something that is left over from the first. You need to have new characters that are not just set dressing to be around the surviving characters of the last movie. You need to have higher stakes you need to have something different, a different element that wasn't there before. Right. And the people just don't think that. They just carbon copy, patoom, patoom, patoom. And you need to be making something more. So if I can come up with an idea of something different but offers more of what you had the first time but offers something different, I've got ideas. Well, you made me immediately think of a duo who I would love to see partner up again in some fashion. Although if they don't, we got a great one-off of them teaming up. And that's Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio because yeah. we were given a great one-off partnership of them in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. and it 
it intrigues the mind of what would happen if you put them together in another movie and maybe a different kind of movie. But again, you try to thrive off of that laid back cool that permeated through that movie, or at least the laid back cool of, of Brad Pitt's um, Cliff Booth. And then um, Leonardo DiCaprio's more highly strong Rick Dalton and the way that those two worked off of each other. What if you would try to put those two guys in a different kind of setting, maybe feeding off of DiCaprio being in a different kind of role or even Brad Pitt being in a different kind of role? Could you make it work again? Yeah. It'd be kind of fun. There's a lot of Newman Redford there. They're both very charming. They can, they're very wide range, but their, their charm is what comes through. Robert Redford generally, in every role he ever plays, generally plays some version of himself. But he does it very charming, and he does it very, very well. I'm not criticizing at all. He does a great, great job. Um, but you have the same thing with DiCaprio, where he's usually very intense. Maybe t- not so much Titanic, but he's very New York serious. Brad Pitt is very California, hey, man, almost a, almost a McConaughey. So couldn't you get that dynamic where one's more uptight, the other's more laid back? You know, here you got uh, DiCaprio completely paranoid that his career is over. And here's Rick Booth, who's really the power behind the power. Clip and Booth, yeah. Clip Booth is just fine with it, you yep. know? It's fine. Here's another duo I want to see get back together at some point. They did a lot of work earlier on in their careers. They worked a lot behind the scenes together, too, but even sometimes on screen. I would love to see Matt Damon and Ben Affleck team up again. Because we haven't seen them together on screen since really early on in their careers. And again, they did a lot of work off screen as well, teaming up to put movies together as well. I'd like to see them later on in their careers now reunite again. Two guys with, with very similar roots. That shows obviously in Goodwill Hunting. I'd like to see them find a way to team up again for another collaboration. Maybe with Kevin Smith directing or, you know, Clerks Four or something, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I could see that. One I'd like to see, they you know, you kind of think about Vince Vaughn as part of the frat pack with him and Ben Stiller yes. and Owen Wilson. But he had another really good team up. Speaking very, of duos, yeah. Oh yeah, very early in his career. But that was more of like an ensemble. It was, you know, you get two of any of that bunch. And you get them together, and yeah. they'll do just fine. Get Will Ferrell and Vince Vaughn. Okay, Snake Eyes, here we go. I'd like to see, he had a really good partnership early on uh, in his career with John Favreau, who's now doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff with Disney and Star Wars, and you've seen him in the Iron Man movies and Marvels. He was Happy Hogan with, with Iron Man. He and Vince Vaughn, they did a movie in the late 90s called Swingers, like Swing Clubs. Uh, and it was just a great team-up, and they did a couple more. And enough to the point when they did, I think it was Four Christmases, he showed up as one of the brothers. So they'll show up together every once in a while, even somewhat more currently. But together, Vince Vaughn's like, eh, it'll be fine. Let's go bold forward. Let's not even worry about it. Leap of faith, leap of faith. And John Favreau, well, I I don't know, buddy. It's just, you know, it's just the dynamic between those two guys. And they get together (laughs) great behind the scenes, clearly. It was a great duo that I'd like to see come back. They're still very active. Vince Vaughn could clearly use a bit of a career reset, I think. I think that might be an opportunity right there that uh, could work very well. Very good partnership. Go If you haven't seen it, go see Swingers. We've seen plenty of them on the small screen together. It'd be kind of funny if Tina Fey and Amy Poehler could oh, yeah. find something for the big screen oh, yeah. to work, too. Because there's plenty of them, again, small screens or award shows. You put the two of them together. You're golden. Well, they did. Finding a way on the big screen, similar to like, um, 
to like a Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph kind of oh, big yeah. screen collaboration. That'd be kind of fun, too. They've done a couple, and they did. What was that other one? It was the Sisters, and I think it came out the same weekend as Star Wars, I think it was, you know, with The Force Awakens, which they knew nobody was going to see our movie because they're going to go see Star Wars, and that became part of the marketing, you know. Okay. Yeah, after you've seen Star Wars for the third time, oh, come yeah, see I our movie. I think I movie. remember what you're talking about. I don't yep. remember the yep. it was about the Sisters or whatever. I did see it, and I laughed my butt off. It All was right, funny. so maybe more of a wider release or a wider interest yeah, release then. Yeah, I love seeing them host the Emmys or whatever together because they can do no wrong together. Even if the movie's kind of eh, it's an awesome movie. But I'd like to see I'd like to see more of those two together. I sense a theme here that there's more that we want to see from some of these current day duos. You know that who hopefully I, will be coming. Do you know who I really want to see team up? I want to see the snappy delivery of Aaron Sorkin and the thoughtful, philosophical, and just whimsical delivery of Steve Martin. I want to see those two do something. When Steve Martin is in charge of helping to make the movie, not just act in it. There's, there's Steve Martin movies where he's just in it, and then there's movies partially made by Steve Martin. Right. There's a difference between the two of them. If you get those two together to craft the movie, and Martin is in the movie as well, oh, we got something magical. But they just don't make movies for you know <laughs> educated adults, we'll just put it that way, anymore. They all have to be funny and punchy and fit in a shoebox and then quickly marketed, packaged, and done and out, make the next one. But that would be well-crafted meal right there. You just about summed up the whole thing right there. Yes, I did. Pretty well. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. It's located on Highway 2 just down from the airport. Remember, stop by. Make sure that you get a chance to pick up your popcorn and also get an opportunity to grab some more from the concessions if you'd like. If you're not comfortable going to a movie, if you're good with going, they've got new movies going right now. So come and check it out. The Bemidji Theater located on Highway 2. This duo is just about at the end for today's episode. We've hit the end of the dusty trail there, Hopalong Who? I say, though, we collaborate again sometime in the future. Maybe about like two weeks? How about two weeks? Yeah. About two weeks? I was okay. just thinking the same thing. Yeah. No wonder we're good at this. We'll team up once again. Yeah. Thunder and lightning unite East Coast and Midwest. Ha! Ah! A little too far? That's one way too to put deep? it. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I'm Joel Hoover. I need meds. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will indeed see you at the movies.